Welcome to the Placing Culture podcast. I'm Sean Houston. On Placing Culture, I feature conversations about current work in geography and in related fields in the arts, sciences, and humanities. In this episode, I talk to Soren Larson, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Missouri, and Matt Jacobson, a recent master's student in geography at Missouri, about their article, Ethnographic Fiction for Writing and Research in Cultural Geography, published in the Journal of Cultural Geography in 2014. So thanks, uh, you guys, for taking the time to talk to me about, about your article. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I think a good place to start would be with a synopsis of the article. Uh, Matt, if you could get us going by addressing that, that'd be helpful. Yeah, sure. So this article, it's in many ways kind of a primer on ethnographic fiction for cultural geographers who would be interested in working with the genre. So in the article, we introduce ethnographic fiction as something of relevance to cultural geographers, uh, especially considering the relatively recent uptick in encounters between geography and the humanities. So we kind of trace the development of ethnographic fiction out of ethnography, and we pay particular attention to issues of representation, subjectivity, and power that cultural geographers face when writing and writing creatively. And then after laying out the history of the genre, we identify a set of literary techniques that we have seen employed by writers of ethnographic fiction, some problems with and strategies for assessing creative works uh, like ethnographic fiction, and then some possibilities that ethnographic fiction affords with respect to reaching new audiences and balancing relations of power between authors and those that they write about. So could you say more about, you know, what you mean when you use the phrase ethnographic fiction and how doing research and writing in that mode is different than what we would think of traditionally as ethnography? Yeah, sure. So ethnographic fiction... Uh, I would say is considered kind of a reaction to this kind of godlike, omniscient narration that occurs in traditional ethnography, and it also reflects this this uh, often shunned desire of some ethnographers who want to and who do write creatively about their experiences and research in the field, and so it's kind of a fuzzy genre, and it straddles this border between fiction and nonfiction. And I think this can be really slippery since fiction is almost always assumed as something that's made up. It's not real or based in fact. But in this sense of ethnography, fiction refers to something that is kind of made or fashioned. And so when you look at fiction this way, I'd say that all ethnography can be considered fiction. And so at its most basic, ethnographic fiction is this incorporation of literary and fictional techniques in ethnography. And so this is a very long and storied history that reaches back into the early 20th century. And I, and I think Soren would agree with me, would categorize ethnographic fiction in two ways. And the first is very similar to creative nonfiction in that it uses fictional and literary techniques to shape and dramatize events that have actually happened. And then a second way that's, I'd say, less prevalent is writing that draws on fiction, uh, elements of fiction, so characters, uh, setting, to evoke uh, actual cultural practices or qualities of places or people. So the characters or the subjects in that version of ethnographic fiction might not be real, but the things that they do actually are. And this has been used more often than not to protect uh, sensitive information about people and places. And how this difference from ethnography, I would say, is the kind of the practice of authorship. In the traditional sense, an ethnographic account is kind of delivered by this uh, omniscient, an omnipresent narrator. It's often been referred to as kind of the God voice. And this God voice delivers an account about culture. It's intended to give a complete picture and theoretical explanation of that culture. And so the process of fieldwork and writing by the ethnographer is more often than not uh, omitted from the uh, final account. 
And so ethnographic fiction, on the other hand, acknowledges that ethnographies are deliberately crafted and they all use literary techniques to portray cultural practices and give meaning to the work. And so the genre recognizes of ethnographic fiction recognizes the situatedness uh, rather than this omniscient perspective of the ethnographer. And the ethnographer is embedded in the story, often as a narrator. These relations of cultural exchanges are emphasized over this all-encompassing uh, narrative. And so this practice of writing ethnography uh, is intended to kind of normalize the power relations between the ethnographer and the subjects that are in the ethnography. And so the account ends up being uh, more genuine and ethical. So in another way, I would say a kind of a final note, I would say in the way that ethnographic fiction can differ from the traditional form of ethnography is that instead of writing solely as just a scholarly monograph, there's a variety of other creative forms that are used to express ethnography. So poetry, essays, short stories, film, these could all be considered ethnographic fiction. I think you alluded to this just a second ago, but in your article, you kind of present what I guess you might call the secret history of uh, ethnographic fiction and anthropology. And I'm wondering, what's the position of ethnographic fiction writing among anthropologists, as far as you understand it? Is it still kind of a sublimated or side practice, or is it becoming more accepted in that field? I am not as familiar with that, but from what I do know, my from my limited knowledge base, I would say that to some extent, yes, it is becoming a little more accepted. Um, Soren has more of an uh, anthropology background. I don't know if he'd be able to speak more to that. Yeah, I I would say that it is becoming more accepted. Forms of experimentation in writing and in narrative form are becoming more accepted. I think especially after Clifford and Marcus's writing culture collection, where they deconstructed the, the writing practices of ethnography, that sort of opened the door for ethnographers to think, think more clearly and more creatively about how they're using their writing and the effects that, that all of those decisions have. So writing is not transparent. Every time you put pen to paper, you're making a decision, and those decisions have uh, definite effects and come out of specific relationships with um, not only the communities you work with in the so-called field, but um, also with the academic community. And so I guess circling back around to the question, it is still a minor form of writing in that, and we can talk more about this later on, um, in that it takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and with the uh, publication pressures for tenure track positions, I think you see a lot of ethnographers deciding to, you know, play it safe, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, and some of what both of you have said kind of makes me connect ethnographic fiction to autoethnography, which is also a practice that seems to come out of that desire to make the ethnographic writing and research more transparent. Except there, I guess you have fewer questions or concerns about the power relationships between the researcher and the subject because the researcher is taking themselves as the subject. But a lot of the needs that that method or genre is addressing seem similar to what you're saying about ethnographic fiction to me. Yeah, in the in the genealogy, those are very, very close cousins, I guess you could say. You know, Ruth Behar is someone who comes to mind who who does autoethnography and also uh, experiments with ethnographic fiction as well. So how did how did you guys become interested in doing ethnographic fiction and in this as a genre of research and writing? that cultural geographers might find interesting and useful? Well, I guess I would say I kind of fell into it. Ethnographic fiction really doesn't have a, uh, a presence, obviously, in geography. And, and even in anthropology, its presence is not as visible. 
And so my interests really kind of stemmed from trying to grasp this deeper understanding of the connection that, that people have with, with places. And specifically, I was looking at the practices of people, um, how they shape places, and in turn, how place, places may shape people and their practices. And this interest really stemmed um, from people's relationship with, with nature and how these relationships are articulated through their practices. So uh, activities like bird watching, hiking, fishing, hunting, and how these relationships kind of forge identities and ethics. I was discovering a lot of work with more of a creative bent yeah, in cultural geography, um, particularly the works of some uh, geographers over in the United Kingdom, such as uh, Hayden Lorimer and and John Wiley. When I discovered ethnographic fiction through faculty advisor, through a, through a course that, that both Soren and I took, actually, it just seemed like a, a good mode or method for, for what I wanted to write about at the time, for uh, exploring some of these relationships and, and kind of evoking them. Yeah, it, it's interesting that Matt and I came to ethnographic fiction simultaneously for different reasons. Matt's already explained his reasons. My reason was for years, I've been working with the Cheslata Carrier First Nation in Northern British Columbia, doing standard ethnographic work um, that resulted in peer-reviewed journal articles on place identity and community development and changes in the landscape. And over those years, I've been working with them since 1998, and over those years, I send my articles to them both in a draft form for them to comment on, and then, of course, in the, in the final uh, proof or final published version. And... Time and again, the response I got was always the same. This is great. You know, you're, you're obviously doing good work, but we're never going to read this. And so we'll put it in the archives and it'll sit there. And at the same time, when I was up there and just in informal conversations, people would say we'd get on topics like the first summer that I came up there when I was 22 years old and didn't know what I was doing. And the subsequent summers I was up there and still didn't know what I was doing. And they would say, why don't you write about all that? Why don't you write about what you thought of us and what we thought of you and all the stupid things you did and all this that would make for a good story. They wanted stories. And I always felt this disconnect and it, you know, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to say it pained me, but it did pain me in that what I was writing was for one community, the academic community, but it was not translating to the Cheslata community. Post-tenure, I decided this is something I want to do. I want to try to write something that they will find readable and that they will find relevant and that they might get a good chuckle out of or learn something or think differently about something as a result of recounting our experiences together. At that time, Matt arrived at Mizzou as a master's student and we both uh, sat in, well, Matt took and I sat in on Elaine Lawless's seminar in ethnographic fiction. And through that seminar, that really gave both of us a jump start in terms of the genre, the issues, the, the, the problems, the debates that are going on. Um, and that really helped orient both of us. And then Matt went forth and wrote his master's thesis. And I am proud to say, finally, as of three days ago, I finished a draft version of this book for the Chess Lot of People. So, yeah, so I've sent it up there. It'll be interesting to see what they think. I've sent them bits and pieces of these stories, and it's really, it's funny. You know, I've kept all the emails, too. The, the emails I get back, you know, ha-ha, that was funny, or you missed this, or they're always correcting me on details that I miss and stuff. But this will be the first time they've seen the, the whole thing um, uh, start to finish. 
Um, so one quick question. This Elaine Lawless, is she an anthropologist or a literature literary scholar? What what is her background? Yeah. Elaine is actually in the folklore program at Mizzou, and that is housed within the Department of English. Elaine has done a lot of work in ethnography uh, with crossing over into folklore and using ethnography to explore issues like domestic violence, to explore issues of religion and religious identity. And she uh, wrote an article, I can't remember, it's in our article, I can't remember the date of it off the top of my head, where she proposed a practice called reciprocal ethnography, which is essentially where you give the text to the people you're writing about and they comment on it. And the reason she did that, and she's, she wrote about this in her article, was that her book on Pentecostal women, it was, um, she wrote that and gave it back to the people after it was published. And they said, why did you do this? Why did you write about us this way? Why did you do... And she said, never again. I never, I'm, I'm always going to involve the people I work with in the writing process from here on out. And she called that reciprocal ethnography. Um, so she teaches folklore. She offers this ethnographic fiction seminar periodically. And we, Matt and I were just lucky enough to be around uh, the semester that she did. And she was very accommodating. And one other thing to say about it, too, there were students in there from a variety of different disciplines, which is a way of saying that I think this impulse that Matt was talking about earlier is not just in anthropology, um, it's also in folklore, it's also in sociology, it's in other social sciences to try to experiment with some of these writing, way, different ways of writing. So to, to pick up on something that you were just talking about, Soren, about essentially making your work more accessible to your subjects or informants and sort of inviting more of their feedback, establishing a different kind of collaboration with the people that you're doing research with. What, what is it about ethnographic fiction, do you think, that helps to open up those possibilities and to make your work something that a wider public, you know, whether it's your subjects or someone just picking up the book, to making it easier to relate to than, say, a, a standard academic monograph or journal article? Well, for the communities that you're working with in particular, which is where this started most recently, for instance, with Elaine Lawless and her idea of uh, reciprocal ethnography, for the communities, in a metaphorical sense, it's an effort to move their position in the writing process from reading over the shoulder of the ethnographer to reading with the ethnographer. So you can imagine the, again, just, you know, extending this metaphor as far as we can before it falls apart. You can imagine the ethnographer sitting there writing away, observing all these things that are happening around him or her, and the natives are in this strange position, the natives, quote unquote, are in this strange position of like, what is he writing about? You know, what is he saying about us. Uh, that's reading over the shoulder. And it was Luke Lassiter who picked up on Elaine's article and developed the idea of reciprocal ethnography to talking about, again, metaphorically, but it translates into practice, reading with the communities. So as you are writing the narrative, as the ethnographic work is, is happening, um, you are in dialogue with the people that are that are in that narrative. And so there's a constant back and forth as the text is being produced. And he refers to that as a, a reading with practice. So you're reading together. But beyond this, collaborative reading practice is a collaborative writing practice. And this is even more difficult if for no other reason, at least again in my limited experience, um, that the people in the communities we often work with aren't especially interested in writing per se. And in some cases, there are barriers related to literacy. Uh, so, for instance, this is what Deb Gordon discovered in her work with Latina women in the El Barrio project. 
uh, she discovered a literacy barrier. They, they were not skilled in writing the women she was working with. And so she made that a focal point of her ethnographic work. In other words, critical literacy became part of the ethnographic process, working with women to help them learn how to write about their own experiences and then integrating those texts into the final ethnography. So that moves us from collaborative reading to collaborative writing. And in these ways, ethnographic fiction, because it expands the scope of what counts as narrative and how narrative can be written, makes the process of research, reading, and writing more accessible to the communities most of us are working with, and hopefully more valuable for their own goals and critical reflection. And then just a final note to get to that second little bit of your question for readerships. It's simply more accessible in that the narratives are often structured in ways, logically speaking, that that we tend to think. In other words, they're stories. Um, so they have dialogue in them. They have characters in them that draw you in. They have a story arc, conflict, conflict resolution, all those elements that you would find in fiction are there in the ethnographic fiction. And it's, I, this is just me personally, I think that many, many people, regardless of occupation or background or whatever, we think in terms of stories. And so that, that storied narrative tends to resonate a lot more than an academically organized narrative, even if you took all the jargon out. Matt, did you have any thoughts on that, on that question of accessibility and collaboration from your own interests or experience? Well, I think I would agree there is a desire to bridge that gap and, and create an environment where you can have this uh, true collaboration with your, uh, the subjects or the people that, that you're researching. You know, through a, a collaborative or reading or, or, or writing, but as as the as the author, as the primary author, so to speak, of the text, you're typically the one that's going to be the most invested in that project, and and so there there are some barriers to unfettered or truly reciprocal uh, type of, of collaboration. In addition to any other. Uh, barriers such as uh, literacy or language or the place of writing uh, uh, in a culture as well. And so those are, oh, those are some things that I've run up against yeah, in my experience. Right, and I would, I would second that. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, and that does sort of, I guess, raise an interesting question about authorship and credit and how you identify that when completing or presenting a text. You know, if there is this kind of back and forth between the researcher and the subjects or informants, and the informants are sort of actively helping to produce or edit the text, when something gets published, how do you address that? And I, mean, I don't think there's a one or easy answer to that, but that's, that's something that occurred to me while I was listening to, to Matt talk about that question of investment. Right. And, and I think knee-jerk reaction, those are the types of questions and issues that need to get worked out on the front end of the project before you get too far in so that those expectations are clearly set, whatever, you know, in consultation with whoever's going to be involved, that everyone knows going in what co-authorship is going to look like. And, and, and that's, again, not only are those very difficult negotiations because of differing expectations and goals, uh, but also because of differing timelines and schedules and all those sorts of, you know, real world issues that you run up against. I guess I'm curious, what experiences have you had with, uh, with IRB and this kind of research? Yeah, for, for me, it's probably not an unusual situation. My IRB uh, with Cheslada, it's on a project-to-project -project basis, and it always covers participant observation, and it always includes in the informed consent, um, obviously, the right to withdraw from the project at any time, but it also 
um, in my informed consent, there is an expectation that anything, any text that you appear in, you will have the right to look at and comment on. I know there are others who don't necessarily like to do that because per Matt's comment, it can take, um, it can create issues. But in my informed consent, I do have that in there. And then on top of that, I get oral consent. I do not have written consent. And the reason for that is that in the community I work with, signing papers is not, it has a bad history with treaty and with uh, reserves and with, uh, in particular, a surrender document that these people supposedly signed in 1952, but later on it was discovered that it was all forged. So everything's oral consent. And then to add another layer of complexity on top of that, the Cheslata Carrier Nation, they like to regulate their own ethics relationships with researchers coming in. So there's actually two ethics protocols going on at the same time. I do IRB through the University of Missouri, that's followed. And then there's a more, I guess you could call it informal protocol um, with the Cheslata Carrier Nation. And those that that involves issues like they want to read the stuff and you know they don't have veto power per se, but that's how we arrange that. So it's it's tricky. <laughs> so you mentioned, Soren, that you sort of decided to go down a road using this genre of writing for your work after you got tenure, which I think raises an obvious question that I think both of you have been pointed to it a couple times, which is how do you fit this kind of work into the kind of reward structure of of academia, which the word fiction, I think, automatically, in the sciences at least, in the social sciences, you know, is kind of a word that you want to, you know, avoid. It sounds like it belongs someplace else. I'm wondering what kind of thoughts you have on on that question about how people doing this kind of work can use it within their professions, especially when they're not already in a profession that sort of recognizes fiction as a viable mode of writing. Right. I guess to begin with, I'm risk averse when it comes to those things. So the way I thought about it, as the years were rolling by and peer-reviewed articles were coming out and I was finding that disconnect between the prose of those articles and, and what I, I felt like the community would appreciate, is that for me during tenure and promotion, it seemed like a high risk strategy with a low probability of a big payoff. It, it takes so long to develop rapport with the community to make this kind of writing workable from the very beginning negotiations of how you handle issues of co-authorship and time commitments and those types of things. Also, it takes a long time for those of us trained in academic writing to disabuse ourselves of that kind of prose and not just to learn to get somewhat proficient at these other styles, but really to begin to develop them as a craft. I mean, this is something Matt and I talked about at length. People who write wonderful books have been doing this their whole lives. And so to think that you can just jump ship, as it were, in your tenure and promotion years and do this, that's a pretty high risk strategy, at least it was for me. The other issue too, in terms of the high risk, is one of audience and presses. So in academic work, through graduate school, we know the journals, we know the presses. But in ethnographic fiction, it's a that is a much slipperier target. You often hear, you know, the fabled, you know, you want to go after the NPR audience, you know, the people who are educated and interested and like to read and buy books and might be interested in reading something about a part of the world they know nothing about, you know, that so-called NPR audience. But it's difficult to connect with a press to find that 
audience for your work. I mean, already with the thing I'm writing with Cheslada, I'm finding that, yeah, the community so far really likes it, but I'm wondering, well, how much of a wider audience does this actually have and how would I rewrite this or edit it to, to get that wider audience? So I think those are all issues that as the tenure clock is ticking, there's just a significant time investment, you know, and it could have a big payoff and it could be the work you love to do and all that sort of thing and every and the stars align and it and it works but it's it's really high risk and another thing that we didn't address in the article but it's interesting and you were talking about this sort of cult history of ethnographic fiction in ethnography and it's been there from almost the you know late 19th century all the way through but a lot of the books that get recognized as really good ethnographic fictions, I would consider, Matt might disagree with me here, as um, kind of cult classics. You know, they were written under pen names, and they just kind of developed a reputation over time. I'm thinking especially of Laura Bohannon's uh, Return to Laughter, for instance. That's another thing to think about. It, it takes a long time sometimes for a book to even get recognized as um, to kind of crawl out of its hole, as it were. Those issues have to be balanced, in my opinion, with the issues of what is your relationship with the community you're working with? Is that relationship one? Are those expectations, are those goals on the side of the community such that ethnographic fiction might be a good way to go? And a final thought, I guess, on this topic is that it probably would be very helpful to start doing this type of thing exactly when Matt started or even earlier, you know, and, and to develop that long track record and to go to maybe a geography program that at a school that also has a good creative nonfiction program where you can be involved in two communities simultaneously, kind of get that long period to percolate that writing style. Matt, am I correct in thinking that this was part of your master's thesis? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, as someone with a, with a master's degree who, you know, could potentially continue uh, my education and, and get a, a doctorate, a degree in geography, from my perspective, standing where I am now, uh, ethnographic fiction as still as kind of a risky endeavor and something that I would be uh, reticent to do, even kind of in this current climate in geography where collaboration and, and intersections with the humanities are becoming more uh, in vogue, so to speak. I don't know how long that will last, if that's, if that's kind of a fad or if that's something that has as staying power. I would say that for someone who is early on in their, their career in, in geography or uh, cognitive discipline, ethnographic fiction or, or writing creatively as your kind of main uh, focus might be, uh, it, it would lead to uh, difficulty, to say the least, I think. It might be something that, you know, it could do on the side, but to kind of make it that my main focus, I don't know if the way that academia is structured um, in geography and in other similar so disciplines in the, in the social sciences, if if the time is, it would be right for that. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of interesting as well to think about the differences between finding a supportive group of faculty and in an institution where you're doing graduate study and then trying to go from there into the academic job market or the professional world where you're probably going to find uneven support or interest in this kind of work. Yeah, that resonates with with me just looking at job advertisements in the jig uh, jobs and geography for the aag and looking at what institutions are calling for in the assistant professor tenure track position level i think that's right but i do think there might be one i could be overly optimistic about this, but I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, one emerging area is in the digital humanities. And I, I, I think there could be some funding interest uh, synthesis and, and, and exciting innovative work 
that's happening there in the digital humanities where ethnographic fiction could fit. It certainly would allow uh, for, for instance, a tenure track assistant professor to work across disciplines on that campus in digital humanities initiatives. We, we have one at the University of Missouri, which is why I'm thinking of that. You know, you could turn that to your advantage, but, you know, those, those are pretty few and far between, but that's, that's one area. But there might be these little areas where you, you could translate a supportive faculty experience at the graduate level to, you know, a job somewhere. And then, of course, just diversifying your graduate portfolio, as it were, to make yourself as marketable as possible. So, yes, I do ethnographic fiction, but I've also published or I'm going to publish in peer-reviewed journals as well. And I can cover these courses and I have teaching experience, you know, kind of putting that whole you you'd really have to do it that way. So, Soren, you, I think, already kind of gave us an idea of how ethnographic fiction has fit into work that you're doing. It sounds like that's kind of building on a fairly long-term ethnographic project and developing a new branch of that. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, Matt, could you say more about, you know, what your research was on and how you incorporated ethnographic fiction into your master's research? Yeah, Absolutely. So I kind of started out uh, interested in looking at people's r- relationships with, with nature and, and landscape in particular. I had this opportunity made available uh, through Soren and the University of Missouri and the University of Kansas to work with students uh, who were attending a geography field camp in um, South Central Colorado. So these students kind of, it was a month-long field course, and it's, it's oh, it's been, it had been going since the late 70s, I believe. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so for this particular year, Soren and I and, and these students went out to this, this field camp, which is near uh, Canyon City, Colorado, for a month. The, the focus of the the camp was on this this concept of, of landscape and how geographers have treated landscape over time. So a lot of that involved just being active and in, in immersed in, in the landscape around us uh, through trips, hiking, um, uh, climbing a 14er, uh, participating in a uh, forestry long-term mechanical thinning forestry project with the Bureau of Land Management. I had kind of initially begun uh, my research with the uh, objective of assessing uh, student learning outcomes that were associated with, uh, with the camp. As we went along, I kind of found that the, the students' interactions with the places that we visited and experienced with uh, people in Colorado that we talked to were were the most interesting, and in in finding a way to kind of write about that or uh, evoke those experiences, uh, I kind of found uh, ethnographic fiction to be just a really great expressive outlet for making those interactions. I guess. I uh, don't want to stretch too far here, but uh, come to life uh, through writing as much as, as writing can, can evoke something or make, make something come to, come to life and to really try to capture that experience. And so that's kind of where my master's kind of took this kind of ethnographic fiction uh, bent and just kind of went with it. And um, it ended up being a very good way for me to, I guess, incorporate my own interests and and express them. And can I add just a footnote to that real quick? Please. Um, Matt sort of has set a trend now in the department. And uh, by that, I mean, uh, last year, uh, a master's student took a creative nonfiction seminar and obviously knew, knew Matt and knew what Matt had done and how he had experimented in his thesis. Uh, 
um, not just with the narrative style and so on and so forth, but even with the structure of the thesis, it, it departed from the somewhat departed. There was still a literature review, but it didn't have the methods, results, discussion, that that standard structure of a, of a thesis. And she did her research in Minneapolis on alternative food networks and food sovereignty and use the photo voice technique where you give the people you're working with uh, cameras, disposable cameras, and you give them a prompt of what to take photographs of. And then you, you do interviews based on their photographs. And then she wrote that up with her participant observation as well. And so, you know, we are kind of thinking, well, there might be a little new trend here in the department of uh, master's theses that are pushing the boundaries in terms of structure and, and those types of things. We are also very aware that these skills and the thesis research itself needs to translate to the doctoral level for those who are interested in doing that. So again, we're running into that same kind of balancing act, as it were, in thinking about this. But there's the reason I say that is, is there is a desire among graduate students, at least in our program, and I would imagine in other programs as well, to write in a different way and, and to kind of push those, those boundaries. I actually just advised an undergraduate research thesis where the student did work with both autoethnography and also um, uh, solicited diaries or prompted diaries from her subject. So she was mixing her reflections on her own experience. The thesis was on people with invisible disabilities and their experiences of navigating space and place. In this case, the kind of interesting question that these subjects have to deal with is, you know, do I disclose or don't I? Because there's no outwardly, they may not appear to have any sort of physical or mental impairment, but that still affects how they relate to their environment. And the student had a had a condition like this. So she kept a, a diary herself and collected diaries and conducted interviews with her with her subjects. And, and it was really interesting research that she did. It's kind of similar to what you were just talking about with the photo elicitation, it seemed like. Right, right. And I think you you raise a very good point, which is for students, is this type of writing going to be helpful to the research they want to do? I mean, that seems to be one of the key questions that needs to be addressed first in making a decision on which way to go. I mean, the standard thesis route is very well spelled out in terms of the structure. The expectations are there. And so, in fact, in our department, uh, Matt and this other student, they produced high-quality thesis work, and it's making us as faculty think, okay, what are the criteria for evaluating a thesis that's written in this way? You know, and how do we do that? Um, how do we establish criteria for evaluating the quality of the of the product? Whereas we know in a standard thesis what to look for. Um, so we're having those discussions now. There's another student in the program who's interesting in that he's been studying biogeography, but he's a I wouldn't even say a closet poet. He's a published poet, and he's. Um, made the decision to look at, um, to actually go on for an MFA. So he's actually taking his geographical interests in place, especially the, the Southeast, um, the American South, and he's going to go that direction. So uh, it's, it's really interesting, you know, hearing your story and then, and then thinking about uh, other students who are wrestling with these issues and desires and, and, and then trying to figure out ways to reconcile those with, as Matt astutely pointed out, the realities of the job market, which cannot be avoided. I guess the conversations kind of turned towards talking about these cases of students who are kind of at the beginning of their educations, potentially, depending on where they want to go with them. But in your article, you do raise the issue of, and I think that Soren, you already pointed to this, of geographers sort of coming across as, as dilettantes or dabbling in crafts that other people spend lifetimes sort of developing. If you're talking about people who are, you know, already established in their professional careers, wanting to adopt some of these methods and their 
graduate educations were more traditional. What would you say about that as an issue or a challenge that someone might have to address? Yeah, Matt and I have thought a lot about the dilettante problem. And in fact, I think I'll hand this over to Matt. Do you have some things to say about that? Yeah, well, I can just say right off the bat that I consider myself to be, uh, I guess I'm looking for the word here, I've kind of fallen into the, the dilettante trap myself in that I've been writing for a while and most of my, just personally, and most of, of my writing is through a nature journal. So I've been been doing that. And so when I first began uh, writing my thesis in, in this way, kind of through ethnographic fiction and, and more creatively, I thought, well, you know, I have some experience under my belt writing and I, I enjoy doing it. And, and so this, this could be, could come naturally to me. It might be quote unquote easier than uh, writing in the traditional kind of thesis structure or academic sense. And I found very, found out very quickly that that was, that was not the case that I ended up spending probably a lot more time writing than I would have had I been writing uh, just kind of your more um, traditional thesis. I think that that came from this kind of perception that I think we all have that these creative endeavors are just, they're less rigorous uh, than more academic modes of writing, that this kind of perception has the potential for geographers or other academics interested in creative writing to approach this writing, as Soren alluded to, as, as experts uh, in creative writing, you know, as, as uh, academics write professionally. It's a, it's, a, it's a large part of the job and uh, the profession. There might be this perception that it might be easy or seamless to transition to a more creative of mode of writing without investing any requisite time required uh, to kind of hone that craft as, as other uh, creative writers or master writers have done. This might also be something that I've thought about a while is that we all kind of have some creative spark within us. And so there might be a pr- just this potential for writers to dabble in creative writing uh, rather than fully invest themselves in that in that craft. So yeah, I would say that that this is something I think that would come up for anyone who is interested or, or, or looking to more creatively, uh, more lyrically, uh, use incorporate more literary techniques uh, into their writing, that it is, it is definitely uh, harder than it, than it might seem. And I think that that, that comes from those, those perceptions that, you know, oh, um, this writing is, is less rigorous. It, you know, it might be more, fluffy and, and, and therefore uh, easier easier to produce uh, when that is, that's not the case. I'll just add to that to say after Matt graduated the following semester, sort of building on some of this momentum, some of the students in the department and some of the relationships over there in the Department of English on our campus, I decided to offer a graduate seminar that I called Place Writing, and it was basically creative nonfiction approaches to sense of place stuff. So we read Terry Tempest Williams and John McPhee and others, and then we had a series of writing workshops that were built into the seminar. And I was surprised to find a number of PhD creative nonfiction students enroll in the seminar. And aside from being thoroughly intimidated by their presence, I mean, these are people who are, um, this is what they do. And I know they're PhD students, but wow, we had Elaine Lawless sit in on that seminar again. And um, another fellow um, who who has his PhD in English, who writes um, as well, he teaches in town, but he also writes. And so, you know, there was a high caliber bunch of folks there along with geography master students 
my strategy in structuring that seminar was to make it as supportive as I possibly could in terms of the workshopping component, the pure workshopping component, because when I originally envisioned the seminar, I envisioned mostly geography master students taking it. We would read some quote unquote master works and then we would uh, mine those for what we thought worked. We would le read some criticism and then we would write our own creative work um, by the end of the seminar and we would peer workshop it um, throughout most of the semester. And it turned out to be a great seminar in terms of the, the just the people who were there. You know, the, the people who are there make the seminar nine times out of ten. If you have a good bunch of people, I just felt like I could almost take my hands off the wheel and let the seminar run itself. It was just, it was so, I was so lucky. Let me put it that way. But one of the things that I heard from the PhD creative nonfiction students in the class I was, I was always worried that my seminar was not rigorous enough for them. And I, I was upfront about it. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. This is great. We're having a wonderful time. You have no idea how refreshing it is to come to a, a writing workshop seminar and not get ripped to shreds. And I thought, oh, of course. I mean, you know, per Matt's comment about rigorous, you know, people on the outside looking in at creative writing and, and thinking, oh, that's not rigorous. I mean, I, I could write that. A huge part of the rigor in creative writing is that workshopping component where you get ripped to shreds and, and people are merciless, <laughs> even if they're trying to be supportive. I mean, that's that critique is, is how you make your work better. And so I think that in, in terms of this dilettante issue, one way to deflect that is to surround yourself with people who are really good writers and who are not afraid of telling you exactly what they think and who also can connect you with other people who are better than you. Um, and who are willing to work with you. You know, quite honestly, Matt and I, we got lucky because Elaine Lawless was willing to work with us um, in seminar and, and on his thesis and then on in this subsequent seminar. And so that's a way to deal with the dilettante problem is to first, I, I know I'm sounding like a 12-step program here, first recognize that it is a problem, <laughs> um, get over the denial, and then surround yourself with really good writers you know in a writer's group or in seminars or in um, however you decide to do it but that and just be ready for criticism and, and take it gladly then of course it's a long haul you know i won't speak for matt but as as for me like in terms of that long haul i'm in mile one of a marathon yeah matt you wanted to add something oh i was just gonna agree with Soren and say that, you know, um, uh, with respect to this uh, dilettante issue, that criticism is definitely your best friend and, and motivator for getting you to invest in, in the time to, to write. And because what I found, and I think what Soren's found, and I think what anyone else who is starting out in creative writing is that that it takes time and it takes discipline and a lot of effort to write well when you're surrounding yourself with, with people that, that do write well and that have the ability to critique your work, uh, that just pushes you even further. And I would also add that, uh, that reading, in addition to, to critique and, and surrounding yourself with you know, motivators, so to speak, that, that reading these master works or, or reading uh, these well-written creative works uh, is a, a great motivator as well. And that's something that when I was writing and continue to write that I constantly do to, to, to keep myself going. It gives you uh, something or yeah, something to, to strive for. Um, so earlier this week, I was interviewing Stephen Daniels and Lucy Veal from the University of Nottingham, also for the podcast. They had made a short film that I wanted to discuss, um, and they worked with a outside production company on that. And Stephen Daniels, at least, expressed some skepticism about the idea of geographers becoming primary creators of art or fiction, and that from his perspective, if you're interested in that kind of work, the more fruitful path would be to find 
artists or writers to collaborate with or to develop partnerships through arts organizations uh, rather than sort of acting as if you too could be a painter or a poet or a you know writer of creative nonfiction or a filmmaker um, I'm just I'm wondering if you had any reactions or thoughts on that kind of idea when it comes to the sort of creative geography or if you think maybe that kind of sentiment wouldn't be a applicable to all forms of creative endeavor that geographers might be interested in pursuing? Yeah, I, I guess I'll start on that with just two thoughts. He makes a great point that that is a, that decision to collaborate uh, reduces a lot of the risk for you in, in, in the sense of the, the time involved and the, the potential of basically reinventing the wheel where someone else has already has done it and you can simply collaborate with them. And I've seen recently, I believe it was Delu and Marston and Geographical Review recently had a special issue on on that very topic of that it, it the introductory piece to that special issue highlighted that those collaborations between geographers and performance artists and geographers and playwrights and and so on specifically as a form of political intervention which i found to be a really interesting argument so yes that that seems to be a trend and it seems to be a way of at least distributing some of that risk and making better uses of your skill set in tandem with someone else who is making the best use of their skill set that said, if you look at the history of ethnographic fiction, I think what's interesting there is that this developed out of ethnography among ethnographers. So it became its own subgenre or genre, depending on what side of the debate you fall on that, on what constitutes a genre. It, in other words, this was something that was innovated within an academic practice. And so to read an ethnographic fiction is not to read a novel. It became its own thing. And, and so I think that while I agree with Stephen Daniels on, on his advice and, and his vision there for collaboration, I think it's also possible to think of ways of integrating literary devices and uh, narrative strategy within an academic project. I think that's much less daunting than to try to become quote unquote a creative writer or to become the next great novelist or to become the next great whatever. But to begin to graft in some of these other strategies, other, other sort of attitudes towards writing, other practices, while not completely jumping ship. This is sort of where I'm getting to right now in my own thinking about it. I mean, after having finished this book for the Cheslata Carrier Nation, I read the whole thing from start to finish and my reaction was, eh, it's okay. <laughs> you know, like, um, I might read it. And at the same time, I'm working on another book that is an academic book for an academic press with a co-author. But we've made decisions in terms of our narrative voice to deviate a little bit from the standard conventional academic prose. And, and so we're not jumping ship entirely, but we are speaking in the first person. We're including dialogue. We're including um, other literary elements that are appropriate for the topic of our book and also appropriate for the relationships that we have with the communities who are involved in this book. So I think that's another option to think about is, you know, what types of grafting can be done. I guess that's a good lead into the, I guess, the wrap up question, which would be, you know, if you were to talk to other geographers who are thinking that this might be 
a form of writing and an approach to research that could be useful in their own work. What's the primary advice or direction that you would want to give someone like that? I guess I would say, as with kind of any endeavor in in writing, I would kind of begin by asking if if this mode or, or method of writing or genre is is appropriate for the intent uh, or the subject of of the writer. And uh, just using an example here, I think it would have probably been difficult for um, Soren and I to write the the art this article. Uh, using a more creative approach and perhaps paradoxically, and this is something that I thought about uh, when writing writing this article and still think about is just considering kind of what the articles the substance of the article and what it what it what we talk about and what we put forward that kind of a more traditional monograph was was more appropriate for our intentions and I think that that's Something that um, that Soren and I had, had discussed when when reading articles that that talk about you know writing creatively or or, or incorporating kind of a more poetic voice uh, in geography were a lot of the of the same a lot of the same that we've all seen before. So really, I think the intent is is an, is important. And an audience, I guess, is 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 important to to consider as well. Who who are you writing for, and who who's going to be cons- consuming th- that work? In terms of of writing ethnographic fiction, I think taking time to really delve into the genre and and read uh, works that could be considered ethnographic fiction. I think it's pretty. It's a very loose genre. There isn't like a a canon. There are some some seminal works I think, uh, such as um, *Return to Laughter*, which we mentioned, and *Their Eyes Were Watching God* by Zora Neale Hurston. I think would be considered to be a, a seminal work in, in ethnographic fiction. There's other novels and, and works like uh, *Eating Dirt* by Charlotte Gill is some is one that I found particularly helpful for me, and she writes about uh, planting trees. Uh, in the wake of, of clear cutting in British Columbia, I think one of my favorites that from the from the seminar uh, with Elaine Lawless, and I don't know if Soren, you agree with me, but that Black American Street Life by Dan Rose was a very interesting evocation of the social life in in Philadelphia. And kind of going off of of the the previous question and, and looking at how uh, geographers can graft some of these uh, more these literary strategies and in, in incorporate that into their writing. I think that there are geographers out there who are already doing this, and they're doing it very, very well. Uh, so they are not, they have these desires and intentions to, pr- to produce creative works, but they are, are, are doing geography, they're practicing geography, and they're just using techniques, literary techniques, narrative, to kind of drive their writing. And uh, I've mentioned these two before, but I'll mention them again. Hayden Lormer and, and John Wiley in, in the UK do a, a wonderful job of this, especially two articles in particular, are, uh, Lormer's Hurting Memories of Humans and Animals, looking at reindeer and, and uh, human interactions in Scotland. And uh, another article that reminds me of, of this doing geography, historical geography in this sense uh, from a from a literary perspective, is um, John Wiley's uh, article on um, Scott and Amundsen's uh, polar voyage, uh, their race uh, to the South Pole. I also think that for doing ethnographic fiction, it's really important to recognize that there is a a, a border between ethnography and, and fiction, and that's just because. As genres, ethnography and fiction, they draw these different uh, expectations. Expectations of authors and expectations from readers uh, with regards to representation, uh, how truth is conveyed, and how authors are held accountable. And then finally, I think, you know, like ethnographic fiction, like all forms of writing, is really about experimentation and and pushing kind of the limits uh, of writing and th- and that should be i think the norm 
when writing ethnographic fiction. Soren, you have something to add to Matt's comments? Yeah, just one thing to add to that about actually writing the article for Journal of Cultural Geography. The way Matt and I approached it was to say that this article reflects our experience as two two people at two different places at stages in their career who decided to learn about this, uh, learn about ethnographic fiction and, and try to experiment writing in that in that way. So the entire article actually reflects our experience learning about this technique. So in terms of recommendations to make to geographers about adopting ethnographic fiction for a project, the article itself is kind of intended that way. We're not speaking as experts by any means. Uh, what it presents is a reflection on our experiences learning uh, about ethnographic fiction and then putting it to use. So the entire article is is structured that way. The second thing to say about that, um, Matt was mentioning the elephant in the room paradox that here we are talking about ethnographic, ethnographic fiction and uh, calling on people to give it a shot and and here's the great things about it and, and here's the problems and here's strategies and yet the entire article of course is written just like a, a conventional academic prose but it speaks to the structures of publication and the limits that you often will experience in going down this road specifically in early drafts of the of the manuscript we had included some um, examples and we of ethnographic of our own ethnographic fiction writing and and trying to kind of think creatively about how we could craft the article in a way that would reflect the experimentation that we were advocating but in the end it's part of a special issue and we had a, a word limit roughly i mean um, that we had to deal with and so that stuff all got cut <laughs> You know, so here we are, you know, dealing with the realities of publication and, and, you know, academic publication that definitely had an influence on our decisions in terms of how to write this article. Simply put, we found that we could say what we wanted to say and say it as effectively as we, you know, could in the, the 5,000 words that we had by writing an academic prose. So there again, it, even this article, the production and the writing of this article speaks to some of the issues that academic geographers and others will face uh, as they try to experiment with things like ethnographic fiction or autoethnography or, or any of these other creative means of creative expression. Okay. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk about the article and more broadly about you know, the uses and values of ethnographic fiction that it might hold for, you know, other geographers and social scientists. This was a, this was a good discussion. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Sean. It's our pleasure. We appreciate it. You can link to an abstract from Matt and Soren's article and find out more about their work by visiting the Placing Culture Tumblr page, which is at placingculture.tumblr.com. You can find episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud under my name, Sean Houston, S-H-A-U-N-H-U-S-T-O-N. You can also find episodes on iTunes. You can keep updated with the podcast by following at Placing Culture on Twitter.